You are listening to What in the Horror with your host Lando and Tim. Welcome back to yet another episode of What in the Horror with your host Lando and Tim. Today we will be reviewing Jaws from 1975 and Congo from 1995. We will start with Jaws from 1975. In a beach town known as Anime Island, a young woman, Chrissy, goes skinny dipping in the ocean while treading water. She is unknowingly attacked by an unseen force. The next day, parts of her body are found on the shore. The medical examiner determines that her death was due to a shark attack, which leads police chief Martin Brody to close the beaches. But the mayor tries to pursue him to reverse his decision, fearing that the town's summer party will be ruined. The coroner tentatively concurs with the mayor's theory that Chrissy was killed in a boating accident. Brody accepts their conclusion until the shark kills a young boy, Alex, in the full view of a crowded beach. A bounty is placed on the shark, causing a shark hunting frenzy, and a local professional shark fisherman, Quinn, offers to catch and kill it for $10,000. Meanwhile, a oceanographer named Matt Hooper, he examines Chrissy's remains and confirms her death was caused by a shark, as he says, a large one. When local fishermen catch a tiger shark, the mayor proclaims that the beach is safe. Alex's mother confronts Brody and blames him for her son's death. Hooper expresses doubts that the tiger shark is responsible for the attacks, and his suspicions are confirmed when, after a examination, no human remains are found inside of the shark's stomach. Hooper and Brody find a half-sunken vessel while searching the night waters in Hooper's boat. Underwater, Hooper removes a sizable giant white shark tooth from the boat's hull, but drops it in fright of discovering a partial corpse of a local fisherman known as Ben Gardner. On the 4th of July weekend, tourists packed the beaches Following a juvenile prank with a fake shark, the real shark enters a nearby lagoon, killing a boulder and causing Brody's oldest son, Michael, to go into shock. Brody then convinces a guilt-written mayor to hire Quinn. Quinn, Brody, and Hooper set out on Quint's boat, known as the Orca, to hunt the shark. While Brody lays down a chum line, Quint waits for the opportunity to hook the shark without warning it appears behind the boat quint estimating its length to be about 25 feet and weighs three tons harpoons it with a line attached to a floating barrel but the shark pulls the barrel underwater and disappears at nightfall quint and hooper drunkenly exchange stories about their assorted scars and quint reveals that he survived the attack on the USS Minneapolis. The shark returns unexpectedly, ramming the boat's hull and disabling the power. The men work through the night, repairing the engine. In the morning, Brody attempts to call the Coast Guard, but Quint, who has become obsessed with killing the shark without outside assistance, smashes the radio. After a long chase, Quint harpoons the shark with another barrel. The line is tied to the stern but the shark drags the boat downward. 
swaying the deck and flooding the engine compartment. Quint prayers to secure the line to prevent of being pulled and the cleats breaking off, keeping the barrels attached to the shark. Quint heads towards shore to draw the shark into shallow waters, but he overtaxes the damaged engine and it blows up. As the orca slowly sinks, the trio attempts a rescue approach. Hooper enters the water in a shark-proof cage, trying to get the shark near him so he can inject the shark with some type of uh, drug. The shark attacks the cage, causing Hooper to drop the spear, which sinks and is lost. While the shark thrashes in the tangled remains of the cage, Hooper manages to escape to the seabed. The shark breaks free and leaps onto the boat, devouring Quint in the process. Trapped on the sinking vessel, Brody shoves a pressurized scuba tank into the shark's mouth and climbs onto the crow's nest. Using Quint's rifle, he shoots the tank, which explodes and obliterates the shark. Hooper services, and he and Brody paddle back into town, clinging on the remaining barrels. And yeah, that's about it for this movie. So uh, when it comes to the scores and everything, Rotten Tomato gave it a 98 with an audience score of 90. Google gave it a 88. This movie had a budget of $9 million and made about $172 million. So that being said, what are your thoughts there, Tim? Hard to believe this was made in 1975, if you really want to be honest. Um, granted, you know, there's a few things they could have probably improved on if it was a little bit more modern, but I highly doubt they would have. Honestly, the animatronics they used to make the shark look real, it, it's better than most of the stuff they use now. Like the CGI would not have done it justice. The only complaint I have is because they couldn't make the animatronics move. Like I was telling you earlier, the swimming through the water, you know, sharks are fast. They have to move. That was the only thing that didn't feel real and kind of scary because honestly, I don't want to meet up with a shark in the water. <laughs> so um, yeah, the sharks and stuff were during that time or like it was amazingly done for its time and a really good movie, even to today. I mean, it would still to the, today you show that to any Oh, it doesn't have to be even a kid, even an adult. It makes you nervous to get in the water. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually have a slight fear of sharks. Like, seeing them in water and shit just makes my stomach crawl. I can't explain it really. But, uh, yeah, what I really liked is the fact that it was clearly that they did use real sharks in certain parts of the, towards the ending of the movie. Especially when they used that cage and everything. That was a real shark that was attacking it. And then when the thing was coming towards the boat and you can see it underwater, that was a real shark. The only parts that weren't real were it physically attacking the boat. Yep. And, uh, and that was a real shark they had on the hanging up too as a real tiger shark. So yeah, they, the realism had some realness to it, but yeah, I don't know if they could improve on that today. I have a feeling even given it's what 1975 that predates before I was born. <laughs> So, and it's still to this day is one of the best shark movies ever put out there. Scary shark movies. It's a fucking classic for sure. I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's like the first horror movie with a shark in it, where the shark is fucking killing people. And that's the main focus. And as far as the score, yeah, this is a five and five for me. It's a classic I can watch over and over again. Yeah. When it comes to my thoughts, I like the whole story 
of this movie. This movie had plenty of blood with some old-fashioned mid-70s gore. And like I said, I have my slight fear of sharks. So watching this, whenever the Jaws shark showed up, like I said, it just fucked with me because of my fears of sharks. Just seeing them under, it's just underwater. Like if I see them jumping out of water and stuff, I'm fine if I see them doing that stuff on like a screen or something. But if I see them underwater, then I'm just freaking out. I just get the heebie-jeebies. But uh, this movie had the best ending for any movie that we've reviewed so far. I loved when the tank exploded, killing the shark and having its bits and pieces flying everywhere. I thought that was pretty cool. So with that being said, I too gave this a five skull rating. I mean, it's a classic. It's my first time watching it. I'm definitely going to get it on DVD so I can add it to my collection of home movies. So with that being said, we are done with talking about Jaws from 1975 so now we will talk about tim's movie again it is called congo from 1995 take it away tim all right it opens up uh there's a team of uh people searching for rare blue diamonds that can apparently be used to uh revolutionize communication lasers by travicon employees and this uh the employees travis and jeffrey um discover the ruins of lost city near a volcanic site in remote part of the Congo jungle. Uh, Karen Ross and R.B. Travis, Charles' father, the CEO of Travicom, lose contact with the team while tracking their progress in the at the company headquarters, which, by the way, he's kind of got a little paranoia going on. And activating a remote camera, they find a camp destroyed, strewn the corpses everywhere, as well as a savage ape-like creature that can, destroys the camera. And Travis asks Karen to lead another expedition on the site. Well, she agrees to this, but only if it's to save his son, to go find his son. And as she ever gets an inkling, then he will be sorry, is very specifically said in there. Um, because she's fearful that he only cares about the diamonds and, you know, his future of his company and doesn't care about his own son. Uh, Peter Elliott, a primatologist at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, Richard Teach, human communication to primates teaching human communication to primates in using a gorilla named Amy with specialized backpack and glove that allows her to speak through the glove as she makes the signs. And uh, Peter's concerned about Amy's drawings of the jungle and the eye of Providence and seeks funding to return her to Africa where she came from because she seems, she just obviously is not happy. Uh, she really wants to go home. And this Ramonian uh, philanthropist, Herkimer, Homolka, I might be pronouncing that wrong, um, offers to fund the expedition. And Karen asks permission to join since her visas are, will be invalid unless it's connected with a venture such as returning the gorilla. Um, and Peter's hesitant at first, but seeing Amy's jealousy of Karen, but allows her to pay for part of the expenses because the uh, Romanian philanthropist can't. He just can't afford to pay for the whole trip. So they wind up footing part of the bill. And the group flies to Africa and lands in Uganda, where they meet with the wilderness guide, Monroe Kelly. They're detained and questioned by, the, by Captain Wanta, a local military leader, who warns them not to trust the uh, philanthropist and leads them proceed only after Karen pays him a large bribe. And yeah, he's this guy's a trip, mutually is. And as the group uh, crosses to Tarzania aboard to board another plane that will take him to Zaire, Monroe reveals that 
the philanthropist has led previous safaris to in the search for the lost city of Zinj. With disastrous results, mind you, he was the only survivor, and he actually had helped him get out of there, I guess, on one occasion. And the group parachutes into the jungle just before the plane is shot down by Zarian, Zarian soldiers. So this whole trip back has been one war zone after another, pretty consistent. So although we're not seeing much of the other, I will say there's plenty going on here. And on the ground, they encountered a native tribe that leads them to Bob Driscoll, a wounded member of Charles' expedition. On seeing Amy approaching, Bob begins to scream in fear and soon dies. He almost seems like he dies of a heart attack from it. The group continues by boat and learns that Molda, in search of the Zinj and its fabled diamond mine, believes that Amy's drawings suggest he's seen the mine and can lead him to it because it's the same symbol he has on a ring and some of all the research he's done before, this eye. So, and then they, uh, after they get, and after attacked by massive hippos, like out of nowhere, if you haven't watched this before, this will get you. Uh, all of a sudden, hippos start attacking their uh, inflatable rafts. They find a ruined camp of nearby city of Ringe and a nearby city of Ringe. Richard and a couple of porters are killed by a vicious gray gorilla. Monroe and Kelly and his friends uh, take up shelter in a ruin, the ruined camp, keeping the other gorillas at bay with automated sentry guns and detectors. But while this is going on, they're testing the perimeters constantly and getting the stuff to go off. So this, it was just a matter of time if they had to stay there any longer before they were going to get overtaken. And when day breaks, they find... Himolkas and several porters and Amy missing. They return to the, to the city and there they find Himolka exploring and surmising the hieroglyphs that the city's inhabitants, especially he bred the gray gorillas, encouraging the violent tendencies to guard the mine and kill anyone looking to steal the diamonds. The group suspect the gorillas turned on their masters and but yet still continue to protect the mine. They just kind of like they almost like overprotected. They actually decided, no, nobody can get near this mine. And they find the mine... And uh, they find the mine and are faced with a troop of gray gorillas. The philanthropist uh, begins to collect the diamonds off the ground, even though he's being warned not to. But soon is cornered and killed by some of the apes. Pretty brutally, they like bash his head in. And Monroe, Karen, and Peter flee deeper into the mine. They discovered uh, Jeffrey and Charles' bodies with Charlie still holding a giant blue diamond in his hand. As Amy protects Peter, Monroe fends off the other gorillas until Karen can fit the diamond into the portable laser, allowing her to power it up and kill several of the gorillas, just like literally, just like a laser, just cuts them down. And the, begin the volcano begins to erupt during all this, too. It's kind of unstable the whole time. They knew they had a limited amount of time there. And as it erupts, it starts to flood with uh, lava, killing a bunch of the gorillas. The gorillas don't. They look so confused that they want to chase after them, but at the same time, they feel like they have to protect the mine and they don't know how to do that. And they just start falling off into the lava because they really kind of can't decide whether to run or to just stay and protect. And once they're safe, Karen reports to Travis finding the diamond and confirming Charles' death, realizing that Travis is only interested in the diamond because he, he didn't seem to have any interest. He's like, yeah, he's gone. Okay. Can't do anything about that, but I need my diamond. She uses a laser to destroy the uh, satellite by having it lock onto the position of the, the Travicom satellite in the sky, and it shoots it down. And in nearby wreckage of another one of Travis's expedition cargo planes, they found earlier, they found a hot air balloon. This is when it was shot down while they, as they were entering in, because he had sent a second team in when he lost contact with them the first time, because Amy 
and Amy kind of caused it to break the uh, telecommunication satellite that they had, the portable one. And uh, they prepare to leave. Peter sees Amy with a group of uh, trooper gorillas and bids her goodbye after this kind of long felt, you know, hugs and stuff. And then she wanders off and she's got a new guy. So the three take off in a balloon. Peter throws the diamond back into the jungle. And Amy watches the departing balloon with a smile, then joins her new gorilla family. And that's kind of how it all went down. But there was plenty more to this movie as far as this, the, uh, like I said, the trip there. There's a lot going on there as far as like going through the war zones and everything. I mean, if there's any truth to any of this, it's kind of scary to think that anyone would travel through that area. But before I get into a breakdown of more of that, Lando, what are your thoughts about this movie? Ooh, I mean, this thing had a great story, in my opinion. I love that Tim Curry was in this movie. I love the scene when he gets told to stop eating the sesame seed cake. That part was pretty damn funny it had other funny parts too which made it even more enjoyable had a okay amount of gore and blood in this movie especially when all these great gorillas start attacking everybody i just love that scene right there it was the best part of the whole movie i never felt this one had much of a horror film feel to it more like a adventure movie with killer gorillas um i really liked this movie when I was a kid when it came out and my thoughts have not changed at all. The ending was great, but I was pretty sad when Amy stayed behind while every remaining survivor finally left the jungle. So, But uh, yeah, when it comes to my thoughts, that's about it. Um, when it comes to other people's thoughts, I don't know what the hell they're thinking over there on Rotten Tomato, but Rotten Tomato gave it a 22 with an audience score of 29. Google actually gave it a pretty good rating of 76 percent this movie had a budget of 50 million dollars and the box office score is 152 so yeah i mean they made at least a little bit of money i mean not much but i mean even in 95 that amount of money isn't that much (laughs) but uh yeah i gave it a five skull rating i also gave it a five skull rating with the little bit of an add-on to it as well about the similar to what you said it feels more like an action adventure and i wonder if that's what the what the problem was because it was pushed as a kind of horror movie with the gray gorillas but the truth is the whole thing is like the war zone is a big part of this nightmare they had to go through and it wasn't so much about the gorillas at the end that was a kind of minute part that was just one last hurdle they had to go over that wasn't even the big one really i mean yeah it was almost dire but but yeah, it's a very, very good movie. Both these movies this week, I love them. Oh yeah, I mean, the makeup effects and all the CG, or not CGI really, but everything about both of these movies, loved them both. That's why we gave Jaws and Keongo five out of five for both movies. So that being said, I think we're ready to wrap this up there, Tim. So if you have any horror movie suggestions, you can always email us at what in the horror podcast at gmail.com you can also hit us up on our twitter that's what in the horror podcast all one word we also still have our discord up so you can join us on there it's on the link tree account labeled discord you click it you join and yeah you get to talk to us crazy bastards that you hear every week or every two weeks but anyways as always i've been lando and i've been tim and we are the fuck out of here 
You were listening to What in the Horror. See you next time. <laughs>